sisters and brothers, welcome to the IFF podcast, a new venture that we are working on here at IFF headquarters. My name is Mark Treglio. I am the assistant to the general president for communications, media relations, and strategic campaigns. And uh, joining me on this new venture is my co-host, Doug Stern. I'm Doug Stern. I am the director of strategic campaigns and media relations at the IFF. So for the last two years, uh, Doug and I, for the most part, have been working on a new project to bring a, what we refer to as a radio network to IFF headquarters, uh, where you could go to the IFF website, download certain audio files of events, trainings that we've done in the past, E18 videos, and really move towards reaching members in areas where we haven't been, whether they're on their drive to work, they're working out in the gym, uh, they're out hiking in the woods, you know, doing their thing outdoors. And we thought that a radio network slash audio uh, file delivery would be a great way to reach members. The subsequent to the radio network would be the building of a new podcast. And while we had decided that we wanted to roll out a new podcast in April of this year, we've really been pushed to the limit by coronavirus and everything that's been going on. So we're really going to start the podcast off with a special edition miniseries uh, that focuses on the health and safety concerns uh, surrounding COVID-19. We're also going to touch on some state and federal resources that you can have access to, how to manage your personal finances through all of this, and touch on what the IFF doing, is doing communications-wise for you. So I think what you're going to see from the initial pre-podcasts, if you will, um, you'll get the information about the coronavirus, the COVID-19, but you'll also kind of start getting used to hearing our voices and understand what it is that we're doing here. Once we get done with these pre-podcasts, we'll launch the podcast in full, probably still in April, so that you get, get all that other information that Mark talked about. But one of the things that the general president and the board wanted to do was get this information out as quickly as we could because we know how important the coronavirus is to all of our members that are out there responding every day. Yeah, and and I give a lot of credit to our leadership here at headquarters. We were out in front of the, uh, of the news and everything on coronavirus in mid-January where the general president looked at the staff and said, look, coronavirus, whatever they're going to call it, is going to be a, it's going to be a big thing. We need to be prepared. And that's when communications got with health and safety, technical assistance, and really started to build out the toolkit that you see online today. And that toolkit debuted in early February, first week of February, before, you know, before it was big news. Right. And the, the toolkit that you see, uh, iff.org backslash coronavirus, for those that don't know where it is, was really a precursor to anything the CDC had out, anything any other organizations had put out. We were really ahead of the curve on getting all that information to everybody. Yeah, for those for those of you who worked with the communications division, you know that uh, coronavirus has really been preempting everything that we've been getting done. And a lot of the work that we've been doing on coronavirus is really being on phone calls with our affected members in Washington State, being on phone calls with CDC, NIOSH, and, you know, really proud of the fact that, that this organization and the leaders running the divisions and the people putting in the work, they're really leading the charge on this. I mean, we have, we've been able to force uh, issues to the forefront that affect firefighters and really change the narrative on how things are going. And it really has reached across every division of the IAFF, um, you know, from legislative and, like Mark said, to health and safety, technical assistance and, re and information resources, if I can remember which one it is, um, all the way through communications, education, everybody has played a part in putting that resource together for you, our members, so that you're better protected as you go out and deal with this really once-in-a-lifetime pandemic that you're all facing out there. Yeah. So that being said, 
that's uh that's enough banter from us for the time being oh it's so witty yes and uh we're gonna jump right in here and uh get to work so as we kick off this uh four-part series on covid19 coronavirus uh, before we get into episode one the health and safety aspect of the response i want to bring in a very special guest joining us today from a uh, uh via phone iff general president harold a shadeberger uh, thanks, Mark and Doug. And, and by the way, uh, our staff doing an incredible job. Even though we are now reducing our headquarters staff uh, at the headquarters location, all of our staff are continuing their efforts on behalf of our affiliates, uh, doing their extraordinary work, providing their services and resources, but doing so remote and through teleworking. And while We'll officially launch the IFF podcast soon. We thought it was important to to use this new resource to get the most up-to-date information surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic to you and your members. I know that things can seem uncertain right now, and that's understandable. But there's one thing that you can be certain of, and that is the commitment of the IFF to make sure that you are protected on the job that you have the proper resources to keep you and your family safe. We've been at the forefront of getting you the information that you need with our webpage at iff.org slash coronavirus. Launched in January, we are continually updating it with the most current information and the best practices for your department to implement. We're also working on the legislative front to secure the PPE you need to respond when you're called, and to make firefighters and paramedics a priority for testing and vaccinations when they finally come available, because we know your work is in an uncontrolled environment, and do you deal with a unique sets of challenges. These podcast episodes will highlight all of the efforts that the IFF has been working on so that our members have the information and resources they deserve as you respond to keep our two great nations safe. So hopefully you'll find this of value, but more importantly, on the job, please stay safe. Thank you, sir. Thanks, sir. Okay. Thank you. Our first episode, episode one, is going to focus on the health and safety, uh, which includes dispatch protocols, donning and doffing, uh, anything related to health and safety, you name it. And joining us today for this discussion is Pat Morrison. He's the assistant to the general president for occupational health and medicine. And Jim Brinkley, the assistant to the general president for technical assistance and information resources. So let's get started. Jim. There are numerous reports about the background of COVID-19 and how it's transmitted. What do our members need to know? Well, let's start with the name itself. It's been referred to a couple different names, coronavirus, COVID-19. There are numerous coronaviruses in the environment in any given day. This is a novel virus that came out in 2019, hence the naming COVID-19. Not that there are 18 other versions that we survived and now all of a sudden the 19th bad one is upon us. So let's get that out of the way first. I think we also need to talk about all of the conspiracy theories and uh, the accusations that this is a bunch of hype, that it's not going to be a big deal. A lot of comparisons to influenza. What we do know is this is highly contagious. We're seeing the number of affected people doubling every two to three days. And that's with very limited testing. You got to remember, there aren't a lot of tests out there yet. Test kits 
just now becoming available. And I think what you're going to see in the next days and weeks, months, is really what we refer to as exponential growth in the number of uh, uh, citizens and members who are being uh, infected with the COVID-19 virus. Um, We got our first call on February 28th. Now, we've been working on our resources, putting together the pandemic plan since January. So on February 28th, we received our first call out of Washington State. And I really have to commend our 7th District Vice President, Ricky Walsh, the Washington State Council of Firefighters President, Dennis Lawson, and our locals that were impacted out there. Uh, they, They got us on the phone immediately on February 28th, gave us a lot of great information on what was happening there, members exposed and and, and going into quarantine. And we started working through what our resources are and how we can help. I think one of the most positive things we did in the very beginning was get those members that were exposed and in quarantine on a conference call. Didn't have any of the fire department management, no city managers, no county managers, just the members impacted. Tell us what you did What was the call information you received? What PPE did you wear? What did you experience when you encountered the patients? And what has transpired since? And we were able to dispel a lot of myths right away. Uh, There were accusations that they didn't wear proper PPE, and that was false. They wore the PPE they were supposed to wear for the call they were dispatched to. Uh, They were responding for an injured person. Uh, only to arrive and find a patient with 103-degree temperature, flu-like symptoms, and we later know tested positive for COVID-19. They were in isolation, excuse me, in quarantine uh, for a period of time. And I want to make it clear that our guidance on quarantine and isolation is changing almost daily. And I'll tell you why. When, When you first start with 17 members that are exposed in the entire country, and you quarantine them for 14 days, uh, that's not such a big impact on delivery of service. Uh, But when you get a report from a city where potentially 400 members were exposed and they go into quarantine, which this happened, uh, you're crippling a fire department in the ability to respond. So what we're looking at is what is a low-risk exposure versus a high-risk exposure. So low risk, everyone's wearing their PPE. We had a a surgical mask on the patient. There were no aerosol generating procedures. Uh, That's what we consider low risk. And yes, COVID-19 may have been present, but that doesn't necessarily mean you need to go in to quarantine. So I think the takeaways from your question is it is highly contagious. This is not a hoax. It is not hype. And we need to make sure our members are wearing the proper gear and being prepared for this. So, so Pat, as we look at it, how concerned are you about the number of our members that could get affected as they respond? And just kind of talk a little bit about the IFF guidance for our folks as they do make those runs. Yeah, uh, I think that's the most critical thing that we're facing right now um, currently with firefighters um, uh, being quarantined or in isolation. We're looking at those numbers in fire departments um, start to go down. We have firefighters that uh, um, need to leave work and not respond. So we are um, extremely concerned. Uh, we do know that we've had uh, probably uh, well over 500 uh, members that we have that uh, have been in quarantine. And we have now we're hitting 
probably in the neighborhood of, uh, of you know two dozen firefighters that actually have tested positive for this. So if you can imagine um, those numbers, and we've had a couple firefighters that have tested positive that have come to work sick, that have uh, that had uh, and this was early on. They had signs and symptoms. They didn't know it at that time, and they infected the uh, the members of their shift. And that again starts to lower how many members can we have to respond to the calls. We're, just just for reference sure. point, we're, we're recording this on the 18th, so the numbers could very well change by the time somebody's listening to this. Uh, to March, yeah, right? correct, Doug. Yeah, th- those numbers are going to continue to rise. We know that, and that's what we're trying to prepare ourselves uh, for those numbers to rise. So one thing that we are really trying to focus on, and, and uh, all of this information, I could tell any, anybody that's listening, please you know, go to our IFF uh, website, you know, to our toolkit, because I think it's important we have uh, all the updated information on there. But one thing that we've just um, uh, released here on that uh, website is the um, self-care guidance and uh, the self-care and self-monitoring guidance. And we've, uh, we want every firefighter out there uh, today um, to monitor um, themselves for signs and symptoms. But we want to put it into a little bit more of a of a regimen that happens uh, um, across the country we want every firefighter when they do come to work that before they are um, their assignment that they take their temperature at that station we we actually have these policies and procedures we want them to show up we want one entrance designated for those firefighters to come in take that temperature we have that temperature set right now that we want at uh, 99.9 um, degrees or 37.7 um, Celsius. And we want to make sure that we, we've given them the signs and the symptoms about the cough, the difficulty breathing, sore throat, muscle aches, um, you know, a number of other items that we have that they can get on that, on that website. And if they self-identify with any of these, we are going to have to send them home. We have to make sure that we have a protected workforce at the firehouse. No, no, when you talk about going into one entrance, that's to check yourself immediately as you walk into the firehouse. It's not one entrance, go to your locker, check your stuff, and then check before you get on the fire truck, right? That's, that's correct. When you're coming in, what we want to make sure that we do not um, infect other people at that station if you are, if, uh, you are infected by the, uh, by the virus. So we just want one single point of entry. Once you've taken your temperature, you're either sick or not, not sick, and this, this is self-reporting. This is going to be done by the individual. Then you can go ahead and your, new, uh, your normal routine um, items that you do when you come in every morning, but we want to make sure that we stop it at first. If we can prevent firefighters from showing up sick with signs and symptoms, if we can prevent firefighters from starting their, their shift with uh, signs and symptoms, then we will prevent the spread of that within our own fire departments and our own members. So we will have enough uh, members to respond to a, a myriad of calls, not just the virus, but every, everything we do every day. When we talk about the temperature, it's 99.9 or higher. So, so if they, if you know, one of the firefighters does show up and they exhibit those signs and symptoms. They have a cough, they have a fever of 102. What's our recommendation for how they proceed? From there, we want to make sure that uh, obviously they, they, you know, with their supervisor, they let them know that they have uh, their temperature is higher than that, uh, 99.9, and they have some other signs and symptoms. They are to go home. We are to, we are to send them home so they can monitor um, uh, those uh, signs and symptoms at home. So we want them to contact their physician immediately to let them know um, what occupation they have, that they are at home, they are self-monitoring. And the other thing we would like to do, and this, this has been difficult, um, is to get a test as soon as possible to rule out that, we have, uh, that they have the virus. And then what about 
an isolation or a quarantine period from there. Is that something that we want them to do regardless or is that be guided by your physician type deal? The quarantine and the isolation when a firefighter does have the signs and symptoms, basically they are going home and that is the beginning of their quarantine. We are starting a quarantine period there. We haven't ruled anything out yet. We haven't tested them. They have signs and symptoms. They're, they have a fever. Um, so we want them to um, self-monitor at home, quarantine at home, look at those signs and symptoms. But with those, if that fever starts going up and you have those signs and symptoms that we talked about, then they move to isolation. Now we're worried about that they could possibly have the virus. So if they could possibly have that virus, they need to be tested as soon as possible. We're hoping that the uh, testing um, comes on board quicker. We're hoping that uh, all our members can get tested and we can get the results sooner rather than later to rule out whether they have the virus or not the virus. A lot of questions about the difference between quarantine and isolation, and you've thrown them both out there. You want to take just a quick second and explain the difference? Yeah, quarantine is that you have a known exposure. You have been in, in front, either you were um, uh, doing um, some, some sort of EMS activity, you responded to a call, uh, that uh, patient, that source patient uh, was confirmed later that they did have the virus. Um, you might not have had your full PPE on for whatever reason. It could have been a call. It could have been an accident. It could have been a cardiac arrest. Some, some breach could have happened. So you have been exposed by a direct source. So in that, in that sense, we want those individuals to begin the quarantine period of 14 days. And that would be they could quarantine at home. If any of the signs and symptoms, they're at home right now, they're quarantined. If they start to have the signs and symptoms, we immediately want them to go into isolation. And that is the separation um, between the quarantine and the isolation. Quarantine, no signs or symptoms. Isolation, I'm starting to display signs and symptoms. So I have to isolate myself from anybody else coming in and giving me any kind of care, what, whatever that care is. With that, with that isolation, the most important thing we can do immediately is to have that firefighter tested to rule out that this is either the virus or it's not the virus. And just the difference between quarantine and isolation for folks that don't know. Quarantine, you can do at home. You just have to maintain that distance of six feet away from your family. Um, clean surfaces a lot more. Isolation is when you are absolutely withdrawn from everyone in a room by yourself getting care, right? That's, that's correct. And, that, and that's a good um, a point you bring up. When you are at quarantine and you're at home and you might have, you know, um, a wife and kids there, we do, um, the, the recommendation is to uh, not to share any utensils, six feet distance, keep that distance there until we can rule out that you do not have the virus. So it's like we said check temperature and signs and symptoms twice a day for our members. Obviously, we talk about when you do it when you first walk into the firehouse. That's an easy break for folks to figure out. What are we looking at for that second time? And is that also go for when they're off duty? Uh, correct. Um, let's start with the off duty. Um, um, all firefighters should be monitoring themselves. It's just not when they're on duty, but they should um, monitor themselves whether they have a fever, if they feel like they're, they are getting sick, if they have some of these signs and symptoms. It's better to ca capture that before they even come to the firehouse. And it's even better for themselves to capture that information early on rather than later. So we do want that um, we want that information as soon as possible. We want the firefighters to continue to do their monitoring off when they're at home and when they get um, to the firehouse. Okay. Um, so we talked about the one entrance and we need, we know that we're reducing our exposure on a lot of our runs by taking the proper PPE, but is there any special way that we can protect ourselves around the firehouse? 
Well, a, a number of things. One is that we have to um, uh, maintain that we have uh, um, at the firehouse that we um, are doing are doing our checks. We're making sure that uh, uh, we're disinfecting too. There, there are a lot of things that we're going to be running calls. We're going to be trying to protect ourselves um, from bringing equipment back from a call. Um, you're running a call, making sure all our disinfectant, making sure that we are um, decontaminating all, all of our equipment. Um, the other thing at the firehouse that we have, and this is this is a, this is a big area. We have a lot of uh, the community members that will come to the firehouse uh, to visit the station to get uh, uh, blood um, uh, drawns for sh- for uh, if they're uh, diabetic or if they have uh, um, hypertension. They're going to come for their um, for their blood pressures. What we would like to do is to make sure that when we do answer those uh, those calls at that firehouse, that we separate ourselves from those individuals at first and just ask them to st- uh, stand away from us, keep that six foot distance, do an assessment. Because this is just like a call. Somebody has come to the house, we do not want that firehouse to be infected by anybody coming in that tests later um, uh, positive to the virus. Okay, now Jim, EMS and response are part of your responsibility here at the IFF as the assistant to the general president for technical assistance and information resources. What guidance does your division have or suggest to our members that are out there on the front lines? I think it starts with the things that Pat mentioned with the self-monitoring. We want to make sure that they're symptom-free before they ever jump in the car and head to the fire station. The other part is making sure that they're getting the proper rest using proper hygiene, the social distancing, all of those things are going to prevent them from contracting the virus in the first place. And then when you look at the operational aspect of this, it really starts with dispatch. And we were ahead of the game here. We, we urged the CDC to change their guidance for dispatch protocols very early on. We were suggesting that instead of just asking about travel to China or travel abroad or being around a known patient diagnosed with uh, COVID-19, that we wanted to ask, regardless of what the call type, regardless of the call type, is any member in your house showing signs and symptoms of COVID-19, flu-like symptoms? Have they been quarantined? Have they been in isolation? Have they tested positive? I don't care if we're responding for a high blood pressure, a stubbed toe, uh, someone fell out of the bed and needs to get back in. We need to make sure that everyone in that house is symptom-free before we come in so that we can wear the proper PPE. Now, fortunately, CDC did follow our recommendations. They made those changes, and the interim guidance is there. Uh, when you look at the PPE requirements, uh, I, I want to be clear about this. The things I'm going to say today are what we know today. But I want our members to continually go back to our website and watch for the updates because as this evolves, as we get more of the community infected, more of our members infected, our PPE guidance is going to have to change as well. But one of the first questions we got was, was, is an N95 the appropriate level of respiratory protection? There were some accusations that this was an aerosolized transmitted disease and that the uh, particles that an N95 protects against are only 0.3 microns and above, and that COVID-19 was actually a smaller aerosolized particle that could get through the N95. And that's simply not true. Now, if you look at COVID-19 on a slide under a microscope, it is small enough to get through an N95. But it needs a vehicle to get from one person's body and into another person's body. And that's usually through mucus, spittle, saliva, some other 
form of a liquid or droplet. And those particle sizes, those droplet sizes, are too large to penetrate an N95. So the, the short answer is the N95 is the best respiratory protection. Obviously, you want to wear the impervious gowns, the goggles, and your exam gloves. That, that goes without saying. Now, unfortunately, we do know there's going to be a shortage of PPE. In fact, the CDC has already said that it is okay to wear a surgical mask for uh, first responders, for firefighters, for EMTs that are providing care if an N95 is not available. We disagree with that. You can certainly make the argument that something is better than nothing, but what our members should have access to is the proper respiratory protection, which is the N95 at this time. Uh, there are are discussions about reusing N95s, which there is no testing on the efficacy of doing that. Um, so we really need our members to work through their locals, through their city and county managers, and through their state officials, their governors, to get access to the PPE that they really need. Yeah, and we're going to have an episode on that later, later on in this series. But uh, it's not just important just to have the equipment. It's about donning and doffing. Tell me some more about that. Sure. I think all of our members are pretty versed in donning PPE. Uh, first of all, they're usually doing that in a sterile environment or uh, an environment that's free of the virus itself, and they have a pretty good handle on that. Where we see a lot of cross-contamination or infection is when they're doffing or taking off the PPE. We saw this when we were dealing with the Ebola crisis a few years ago, and we're seeing it now. Uh, what we're asking our members to do is to watch the video that we've created for donning and doffing PPE, and then we want you to practice that. We want you to drill on it like you do anything else in the fire station to make sure that you're not doing any cross-contamination. Uh, we also suggest pull out your phone, video yourself doing this, find your own mistakes, and that way you can correct those actions and have a better attempt next time when it really does matter and you're in a situation where you're going to be exposed. So one last question for you is, at LegCon, you gave a presentation. You, you did a great job in front of the membership. But you were talking about combating the conspiracy theories that were out there and the, the things you see on social media about, oh, how the flu is this bad and, and COVID-19 is only this much. G give me a little insight on that. Yeah, we, hear, we see on social media quite often that uh, many don't believe this is any worse than the flu that we don't hear anything about the, the flu epidemic or the, 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 inf the infectious nature of flu and how many deaths occur. Here's what we do now. Every flu season, there is something on the local news, the national news, billboards on the side of the road. Every CVS, Walgreens, and every other drugstore has immunizations available, vaccines available. And the public health campaigns that surround influenza are widespread. It's well known. And we've been dealing with influenza for a, de uh, a century in this country. So we know very well how to deal with influenza. Even with all of that, we're seeing anywhere from 35,000 to 70,000 deaths a year. That should be alarming. Now let's compare that to COVID-19. This is a novel virus. We don't know anything about it. We do not have a vaccine. The public awareness campaign is just now starting. We know that this is highly contagious, at least as contagious as the flu, if not more. And we'll learn more in the coming months with the research that we're gathering. But 
I, I go back to this is highly contagious. We don't have a vaccine. Uh, there are a lot of naysayers out there. Um, this is going to grow exponentially. And if we don't take this serious now, you're going to see a change in the way we deal with infectious disease in this country, and it's not going to be good. Gentlemen, I appreciate your time today, your, uh, your knowledge into this, the work that you've put into it the last month and a half has been uh, nothing short of extraordinary, and we appreciate it. Do you have any last suggestions as we close out this episode? Well, I, I think we have to, um, we're all in it together. We're working together, you know, in the fire service. This is extraordinary times that we have to you know, make sure that we're doing uh, the next right thing here. Um, complacency, let's, let's don't get complacent about this. This is serious. It's deadly. Um, it, uh, our community health that we work in, that we live in, that our kids uh, are part of, that our families are part of, um, we have to make sure that we're part of trying to protect them and to stop the spread of this virus. And I'll just add, regardless if you've been exposed or think you're infected, we're asking you to monitor yourself, check your temperature, look for other signs and symptoms twice a day. And when you do that, you should also go to our website for the latest guidance. So self-monitor twice daily and check our website for the latest information twice daily. And that website for, uh, for those that are listening, www.iaff.org backslash coronavirus. This concludes episode one of our four-part series on the coronavirus and uh, COVID-19 event. I want to remind everybody to subscribe to the podcast, share and like it. Make sure your friends know that it's out there. Give your brothers and sisters. You can find us wherever you get your podcast materials. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and uh, stay safe out there.